0: the entire capitalistic society that we live in was set up to encourage people to create jobs and encourage people to create housing and if you want the maximum benefit of the tax code then do those two things
1: hey everyone welcome back to bitcoin is hard this is a choice app production about bitcoin and personal finance Our guest today is Samson Jagoras. He's a referral coming over from Bobby Shell, who also works at GrowthView. Samson is the CEO of GrowthView Properties, and this is the latest in our series of creating Bitcoin and real estate crossover content. It's two things that I'm passionate about, and I think that there is just a gap of information on the internet that's like analyzing the intersection of both these things. And so this is gonna be wide ranging. Samson and I just met. And so you're getting like just raw what happens when like Bitcoin, like and kind of early real estate investor guy, talks to like very successful commercial real estate investor guy, among other things. So Samson, start us off by just giving your background, the highlights that you enjoy sharing.
0: Yeah. So never thought I'd be doing what I'm doing. I have my blue-collar kid group in Los Angeles, California, on a mega dose of hardcore music, punk rock skateboarding and sports and um, I at about 14 years old discovered that I loved to play football and uh, fell in love with the game showed up for my first football practice realized I was pretty good at it and it changed the trajectory for my life for about 10 years and so ended up uh, getting re- recruited to go play at division two school in New Mexico then left the scholarship took a walk on at the University of Colorado by the grace of God got put back on scholarship a year later and uh, met my wife, was going to school, thought I wanted to get into like orthopedic surgery, Uh, realized that I wasn't prepared to go back to school and take OCHEM and redo some of my science classes to get into med school. (laughs) So um, I loved strength and conditioning. And, uh, you know, when you play football, you spend about 80%, 85% of your year training. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so you you really just grow a love for that. And I had always loved it since I was about 13 or 14, it was probably one of the things that drew me to playing football. Um, But I met my wife and I knew that I didn't want to go be a graduate assistant and drag my wife across the country, which is just really hard and miserable and gross and pays like crap. Mm -hmm. So uh, I graduated on a Friday with a degree in human physiology and walked into a futures and commodities brokerage on a Monday. Mm -hmm. Three months later, I was, you know, world was my oyster. I was a newly crowned series three broker and September 29th, 2008, the Dow Jones fell 777 points, which set off the economic housing crisis. So uh, best thing that ever could have happened to me. I had negative money to my name. Um, I got learned trial by fire, jumped into the deep end of the pool about economics, finance, trading, investing, risk management. And um, if I only knew then what I know now, uh, we probably wouldn't be talking because I'd be sitting in the Bahamas somewhere on my private island. But uh, hindsight's 2020. So uh, after doing that for about four years, I was uh, sleeping with a laptop next to my bed. We were doing managed money trading programs, trading systems, and when you're waking up at you know one o'clock in the morning to watch the coffee market open because it's pretty much a 24 seven industry, it starts to really kill the quality of life. You know for a 23 year old kid making 150 grand a year as a broker was great but it really started impacting my marriage and just my health and so i was going to leave and i was going to go get into financial planning um one because i got an entrepreneurial spirit i can go build my own business and two i just love the world of, of finance and then uh kind of along the way in the firm we ended up spinning up a marketing company which is how i know bobby and um we ended up um Going on a wild ride. I came in, ran strategy, did that for about 10 years. We scaled that thing up from zero to 600 employees and a little bit over 100 million a year in recurring revenue. And uh, gosh, five, six, seven years ago, um, I started diversifying in real estate, taking mm-hmm. some of the good income I was making and built passive cash flow. Ended up building a gym. So I've, I have a fitness concept as well that I'm figuring out how to scale. Yep. And, um, and just fall in love with it, fall in love with yep. the lifestyle design that comes along with building uh, real estate. I love that it's hard. I love that mm-hmm. it's not easy for everybody to get into. It moves slow and it can generate income uh, for me in perpetuity. Yep. So fast okay. forward to today.
1: I love that. So, and I love that because where I want to start on, I want to ask you about where Where Bitcoin, if and when it did come into there uh, as part of that timeline. But then, where I wanna start is on exactly on this concept of like cash flow versus appreciation, because I'm starting to really draw parallels between kind of the way people think about Bitcoin. And also, when I'm out there watching like real estate content and just trying to grow my own knowledge about real estate. I enjoy hearing people just start from scratch and talk about the differences between appreciation and cash flow. And I think it's relevant to Bitcoin. But so first, but moving back on the timeline, where in the timeline did you like encounter Bitcoin or start thinking about it at all?
0: You know, uh, so living in the world of of marketing and technology, I mean, you're sitting around a bunch of engineers, I I remember it was probably at the very beginning stages, like Mm -hmm. 2010, something like that. I remember hearing about this thing, and it was super cryptic. You know, the in that same conversation, there was you know onion routers and deep mm-hmm. web, and you know all this crazy stuff. And I would just say, I, in ignorance, with my uh, we'll call it traditional finance mind, would say, "There's no way the government would ever let that happen." Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, not understanding the technology and what was building. And then I lived through it. I remember in you know the last big bull run was that Mm -hmm. 2017 something Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. when it went nuts and you know everybody around me is just making a lot of change in bitcoin Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. i had the at least the understanding of you know parabolic markets what goes up must come down and so was always like coaching people like hey man she takes them off the table like you know oh it's going to a million dollars and Mm -hmm. um and so that was my first run up with it but uh, that's when I started really exploring it more, understanding it, trying to understand the technology behind it, which I think is the biggest limiting factor for most most people. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think it was, I read a book called The American Jubilee, mm-hmm. which talks specifically about exactly everything that's playing out in our society right now. And uh, and I started um, following that guy, Porter Stansberry, mm-hmm. a really smart guy who was actually very anti-Bitcoin. And he ended up coming out with a like, Call to like, hey, you need to buy Bitcoin now, yeah. And so I called Bobby and said, Bobby, I don't have a wallet. I don't know how to transact it. I don't know how to do any of that. Just buy it, and I will. I'll send you the money, and you can you can help me through this process and send me that. So I bought my first coin. It was like sixty five hundred bucks, something like that. Sweet, sweet. And um, and I was in the game, right? Yep. And then I dabbled in all the other crap along the way, and just come back to the ultimate, you know, understanding that. It's like the age of the internet, you know there's a lot of companies that are just gonna blow up and never make it. Yeah. but at the end, at the end of the day, the internet's still gonna remain right? Yeah, so perfect.
1: All right, no, then perfect. And so whether we're talking about commodities or Bitcoin or like that bucket and or the stock market like and or we're talking about kind of real estate. and for for this example at the front end, let's just let's just group commercial and residential together because I do want to break both of those apart and get your like, takes on those, but then just these, both these things. How do you just think about, in general, an investment, like, quote unquote, going up, like, or an investment paying you? Like, and do or do you even like those terms? Like, what, what do you think about just both those concepts?
0: I mean, in the simplest sense, like, if you look at the majority of wealth that's built in real estate, it comes from cash flow, not appreciation, right? And so, the the deal, when you're buying a piece of real estate, you're essentially buying a business, nobody would buy a negative cash flowing business, right? You're buying cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if you're buying something that has value add potential, where you feel like you have a skill set mm-hmm. to enhance the business, then sure, you can, you can maximize that return profile. But at the end of the day, um, the business needs to, to cash flow for you to, to consider mm-hmm. buying it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, you know, cheap money is a hell of a drug, and uh, it has some, you know, really uh, ec- excessive uh, factors that push the cost of things higher, and it's just not realistic in the long term mm-hmm. um, to just expect things to continue to go up forever. Because there is a certain point where wage growth, specifically in real estate and profits don't match the appreciation and so people aren't just going to keep paying more and more and more and more eventually they will say no or somebody will come along with a better innovation god bless capitalism and there'll be a a better cheaper more affordable solution for them to get their hands on Um, and that we probably haven't even discovered that yet Mm -hmm. so yeah i always just think about cash flow and then appreciation's the the cherry on top Um, Mm -hmm. As you get into more institutional-grade investments, um, you need to be looking at all of those things: internal rate mm-hmm. of return, yield on cost, um, equity multiples, while simultaneously look on cash and cash return, and mm-hmm. looking for day one cash flow. Um, so it gets mm-hmm. a little bit more complicated, but
1: um, and. And some, but some real estate investors would like take the opposite approach, right? And they would be like, like what I'm trying to draw out is I'm starting to see that in real estate, when I watch the content, there's like appreciation maximalists and then there's like cash flow maximalists. And mm-hmm. so, what is the, what's your, what's your interpretation of the argument of the other side?
0: I mean, I can't, I can't live off of, I can't live off of uh, equity, right? We call it lazy equity, right? So, if I'm not getting cash flow from it, it's somewhat somewhat useless to me, right? It's all, it's all paper wealth. It's just like, mm-hmm. you know, three, four months ago when Bitcoin was trading at $67,000, right? We're like, ah, I'm Bitcoin rich, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really count until you cash it out. So cash flow is one of those things that I can count on now and I can count mm-hmm. on it today. Um, and in the world of commercial real estate, like a non cash flowing property is worth nothing, right? Because mm-hmm. the whole entire thing is valued off of net operating income and cap rate. So, um, you know, I guess it's a little bit different if you have the cash and you can, you know, tie it up and, uh, it, you know, own the asset outright and there's no debt on it. But I don't know why you would ever do that, you know, like especially when the dollar's depreciating at 9% per year and you're tying up all this cash and there's still pretty cheap debt out there that you can get yeah. and get levered up in order to actually generate cash flow and, and net long term you know, build your money and your wealth even more. So yeah,
1: let's so let's tackle this then. So why do you think? Why do you think so many people are drawn into, like, investing in the stock market or investing in commodities or investing in Bitcoin as a way of like becoming financially free? Like, is it because that the barrier to like investing in things that cash flow is high like investing in things that cash flow is hard like buying a small business is hard and confusing or like buying cuz i was even going to bring this up but you can use any example you want like scrolling your site as someone who owns like one residential like um like one single family residential property, like scrolling big, like commercial sites and thinking about syndications and thinking about, like it's very, confu- or it's not confusing, but it's very intimidating, I think is the word I would use. Of like, it feels like that's a world that I haven't, like, I haven't done the prerequisites yet. So it's like, do, are people investing in like commodities that go up? Like, is that where you still have to start? And then you- Move into like investing for cash flow later, or do you think you can start from scratch, like investing in cash flow?
0: I mean, I think the answer to answer your question is, it is easy, right? Anybody can go buy Bitcoin. There's exchanges. Anybody can buy stock. Anybody can go buy commodities. You mm-hmm. can set up an account tomorrow, and boom, you're in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, it it takes a lot more skill time and expertise to operate a property but you all have you have to start somewhere right um i think you know where real estate gets a bad rap is people they treat it like a side hustle right um you know you didn't start your business and go like ah you know we'll just dabble and see how it goes like there was real commitment and dollars and risk that was put on the table in order to make it successful um so it's a little bit of um people don't want to pick up another job and, and they, they, need to, they need to focus on it correctly and think about this, as, this is your business. Um, and so I think that there's, there's about generally like four ways that people get into real estate investing. Either one, they're born into it, right? So their family did it, dad did it, something like that. They, sp- they spend seven to 10 years working in the industry. Number three, they go bang their head against the wall and just figure it out. Number four, they find a mentor. And the fifth bonus, they realize, hey, you know what? I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm a lawyer. I'm an attorney. I'm a Bitcoiner. I'm a developer. I'm an engineer. And I'm good at that. I just want to be a passive investor. I'm going to go place capital with guys like Samson and um, and let them handle it for me. I'll stay in my lane because I, I know how to move this needle and make more money here. But I'm looking to diversify into passive cash flows that also give me uh, tax benefits. Um, the The rub there, is, you know, the entire capitalistic society that we live in was set up to encourage people to create jobs and encourage people to create housing. And if you want the maximum benefit of the tax code, then do those two things, create jobs and create housing for people. And if you can be in a business that creates housing for people and simultaneously creates jobs, then you can literally live in a completely tax-free world and never, ever pay taxes ever again. Um, so I think, you know, there has to be a real impetus and desire to go say, Hey, I want to make that my business. Do I don't I want to be in the business of real estate investing, or do I like the idea of investing in real estate? Uh, those are two totally different things. One's a career yeah. path and, and one's a, an investment strategy probably should be a passive investor. If you, uh, don't want to actually go do the work and be the operator. I generally love the game, the hustle, putting the deal together, raising the money, talking to brokers, calling on owners and doing all that. That's, that is the game to me. So yep, yep. don't ask no, me, don't ask me to write a line of code, right? That's a different. Right.
1: <laughs> no, that's perfect. Cause I had down on my paper to talk about pac- like passive versus active and okay. So talk to me. So and agreed. So then that person that had, that chooses like, Hey, I want to be an investor in real estate, but not an operator in real estate then they have the choice split between kind of buying Bitcoin or buying the stock market with their surplus of their being a lawyer or placing the money with like sophisticated commercial like real estate operators. So talk to us about that. Like why, what's the pros of going like placing with you over like buying like assets that go up?
0: I think most people are under the impression that they need, to, they need to have all the money to buy the asset. And the reality of it is most of these larger commercial projects are multiple parties coming together to supply the equity. And the the biggest uh, money provider would be the bank providing the debt. Um, you know, I think you can have, actually have the best of both worlds, right? Like it, a form of infinite banking, right? Where you can get your Bitcoin with something like unchained capital or choice or something like that and, you know, be able to never actually sell your Bitcoin and take out a loan against it and then go place that capital with somebody else. But when you invest in a larger commercial project, though you don't own it outright, right, you're getting access to a bigger, larger, more scalable investment that's theoretically safer and you can get the same, if not better returns than you ever could by investing on your own, right? Mm -hmm. You know, $50,000 invested in a $30 million project is probably going to get you access to a better asset than taking that same $50,000 and putting it in a $250,000 asset, right? So there's pros and cons to all of that. But um, coming from the world of trading futures and commodities, I'm always thinking about things in terms of risk. Um, In the world of futures, it's highly, highly leveraged. So unlike stocks or even Bitcoin, where if I put $100,000 in, the maximum amount of money I can lose is $100,000. When it comes to trading commodities, your leverage is sometimes 10x, right? I can take $10,000 and I can lever up to buy a $100,000 crude oil contract. And if that thing goes negative 40 like it did um, last year, then I could be losing $100,000 overnight. And I've seen it happen multiple, multiple times. But my mentor told me, you know, you're going to lose a lot more than you're going to win. So you should always be controlling your downside because your winners will be 10X what your losers are. And so scale in a larger deal gives you uh, better risk mitigation because like a large commercial apartment complex, you can have 20 units vacant and still break even. Mm -hmm. I have one singular property that I own outright because it makes me feel all one and fuzzy and it goes vacant. It's a hundred percent vacant, mm-hmm. and I have no cash flow, and the mm-hmm. debt it's coming out of my pocket, right? So, larger commercial involves uh, commercial banks, non-recourse debt, and so the bank is you're going to make sure that that asset will sustain any kind of downturn. In most cases, right? the The default rate on large commercial multifamily in two thousand and eight was zero point zero four percent, so less than one percent of those loans went into default. Why? Because cash flow is king. Yeah, how, um, you mentioned the dollar devaluing, do you,
1: talk more about that, like talk more about how, so agree about partnering with the bank, agree about kind of if you're in the business of creating jobs or like creating housing, like you're in good standing with um, like the government because you're on, on their side, like of what they're trying to get accomplished how much do you think about like the dollar devaluing like on a day-to-day basis? Or do you think and at all, do you think about like kind of like the currency like wars that are happening? Does it affect the like day-to-day math of like putting deals together?
0: Um, Yeah. I mean, it definitely does. Right. Because so the day-to-day math of putting deals together, it's, it's built specifically around, you know, rent growth. Right. I, I can go in there and I can pencil in 9% inflation into all my deals, but I have simultaneously have to look at wage growth and say, you know, are, are people actually making more money? I I can't just assume that I can charge them more rent. If they're not making more money, eventually they're going to move somewhere else where it's cheaper. Mm -hmm. So it definitely impacts it there. Um, I think um, leverage has been cut substantially. You know, we used to be able to get 75% loan to cost for bridge debt on a value add deal. That's now 65%. I used to be able to get 70, 75% loan to value on a- and, fixed- why,
1: and why is that? Because like, that gets into very like complex banking. Like, why, why is that? Why is that broker like, pulling back? What's making them pull back?
0: It, it all comes down to what's called the debt service cover ratio. So they're just looking at the ability for the property to actually cash flow. So mm-hmm. they're all predicting worse cap rates in the future, worse rent growth in the future, and so they and why just are can't... they
1: doing that? Because of economic surveys that they're
0: reading? Because because rates are going up. So when rates are going up, obviously that's going to eat into your cash flow because your debt service is much higher than it was previously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think a lot about that. Um, you know, I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about the macro. One of the greatest books I ever read was called Accidental Superpower by Peter Zion, if you haven't read that book. And you know, we've since World War II, we've been a consumer economy. Um, about every, let's call it 80 to 100 years, conveniently, we're 77 years post-World War II. um, There's some sort of change, right? And and we're going through deglobalization as the United States withdraws itself from the rest of the global economy. And we've had the benefit of, you know, being the best house in a bad neighborhood of fiat currencies, right? So, you know, after the Brenton Woods system failed and we moved to the petrodollar system, Um, So when the when the United States withdraws themselves from the rest of the world, what does that mean for the dollar, what becomes the global reserve currency, you know, I think that matters, do I think the United States is going to be okay, absolutely, we have more farmland more shale and oil and gas than Saudi Arabia, more navigable waterways more defendable shores, more natural resources than any other country in the entire world. And for the last 80 years, we haven't even tapped them. Um, so I think we're going to see more manufacturing and more production come back to the United States, uh, which also means you know, we're going to have one of the more thriving economies. But that means that a lot of foreign investors, we're the number one country in the world for direct foreign investments. So we're going to have more money moving into our system because we're one of the few countries that lets other countries buy our real estate. So that'll definitely keep the market propped up. Um, but I think about real estate in terms of an exchange medium. So I don't care if we're collecting in if the United States moved to pesos or wands or Bitcoin or yen um, or Canadian dollars, um, it's all relative, right? So I can, I can uh, if I have some sort of exchange medium, I have something of value that you want, then I can actually determine what currency I want to get paid in. Um, and so the real estate to me, and this is why cash flow is so important, is just an exchange of value of goods, right? And Bitcoin becomes a store of value for sure. You know, it's like a a way for you to not be sitting in cash, but uh having it sitting in something that's not generating cash flow for you is somewhat useless. It's like having a a bunch of tools and never using them to build things. Like you just have a really expensive toolbox and a really expensive garage. So you got to put the money to work, right? So, that you don't have to ultimately. Right. Right. Because money is just an exchange of your time.
1: So, and in, what's interesting about that is it's almost like, there may mixing definitions, but it's like real estate is almost like the base money. Like real estate is the base money. Cause then you can take loans against that or how you're saying you can like charge rent on it, but it's, or it's like it's the base of value.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, end of the day, it's just barter system. You know, if like you had a nice car and you wanted to rent my property, I mm-hmm. said, okay, give me your car and I'll give you you know, rent for two years. Yeah, Like we just did a deal. Um, maybe I want Bitcoin. So I go, okay, pay me a Bitcoin. You yeah. know what I mean? Which I, I really do think is going to be a thing. You know, we're seeing more and more payment processing companies figure out how to integrate. We're seeing more and more technology and smart home be integrated into apartment complexes mm-hmm. to where I can literally use this beautiful device right here mm-hmm. to access my apartment, unlock my apartment, manage yeah. my rent, pay my rent, yeah. you know, uh, monetize yeah. the entire property. And go ahead. Awesome.
1: No, off of that, talk to us about this. Bobby brought up about kind of like the, the um, how old the average apartment building is in the United States. Can you talk about that at all? Like, so yeah, the newer buildings are like like that how does the age of our apartment buildings affect
0: what you're saying so it goes back to risk right so anytime you're taking on something that's older than 1980 there's a whole new slew of risks involved like aluminum wiring aluminum and lead pipes asbestos uh, lead-based paint right so those are things that are just added costs that require you to do more if you're going to actually really renovate the property but on average, we lose about 100,000 units from the supply, at least in multifamily, every single year just due to age and obsolescence. They just phase mm-hmm. out of the market, which means we need to build about 4.6 million net new units by 2030. And we can only build you know, about 300,000 units per year. So we'll be about 1.6 million units short by 2030. And then you factor in other things like inflation, the cost of building has gone up substantially this over obsession with ESG that municipalities have now grasped on, grasped onto. So they're throwing in things like utility benchmarking and unrealistic. They're adding unrealistic costs to projects that make it impossible to actually be able to um, build something that's gives you an actual return on investment. Like nobody's going to do it if they can't make money on the deal. And it's progressively getting harder and harder and harder and harder. Then you throw in things like here in Colorado, we have a, the water in Colorado is not uh, owned by the state. It's owned by privately held entities, a lot of farmers mm-hmm. and water shares. So the cost of water will now cost you more for your project than the actual land itself does. Yeah. Um, so it's just you. all those things are exacerbating, which further creates a supply gap, which enhances the demand. I mean, there's... Right. There's no shortage of new people being born and new people moving here, and so I think that um, we need people to step in who can take older properties and keep that inventory on the market, and that'll become more and more important as development uh, less less and less deals are getting done because they just can't make sense of the numbers. Right. Perfect.
1: All right. Last three questions, rapid fire, because we have nine and a half minutes left. Rapid fire yeah. on the last three. It's so. What is your advice to someone who doesn't own anything that cash flows? Because your perspective on cash flow, very convincing to me. Cash flow is something I'm very interested in. Someone who doesn't own any ca- anything that cash flows right now, they're only invested in things that appreciate. What's your advice to them? That's number one. Number two is I want you to blitz through your hiring tweet thread because we have someone explain a tweet every episode. So blitz through that and explain to us what you've learned. And then number three, what's a Bitcoin product or service that doesn't exist yet that we need? So, blitz through all three of those.
0: Okay, what was the first one again?
1: First one, first one was that if someone doesn't own anything that cash okay. flows, they only own things that appreciate, what would you tell them? Uh,
0: I would tell them to find a syndicator, a group where they can actually deploy capital as a passive investor and start getting access and exposure to passive cash flow investments as well as the tax benefits that come along with owning real estate. Um, perfect. Listen, to, listen through my tweet about yep. hiring people. So, yeah, um, I have a thesis, which is, you know, building great companies is about building, uh, irreplaceable people, which is counterintuitive to corporate America. And so, you know, if you want to get the most talented people, I hear it all the time. ah, oh, we're, we're having trouble hiring people. People are leaving our company, blah, 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 blah. It's because it's been really easy to quote unquote, find talent for the last 10 years. Cause people come to you And uh, we're not treating leads with as much uh, sacred and revere as we would say, like, uh, or talent leads as we would like a sales lead. Mm -hmm. And so we need to have the same kind of uh, mindset. And so I was responsible for hiring, you know, about 100 people a year. At one point, it was 150 people a year. And so the average hire would take 90 days to get somebody hired, which is just not feasible when you're trying to hire that many people at one time. So I literally took the entire process and turned it on its head and did everything that typically happened at the back half and just did it at the front and said, how do I collect as much data and information about these people at the front end so that within one interview, it's kind of like going into a date, I can know as much about this person and ask as many in-depth questions as possible to understand if they fit with the core values and they have the intangible skill sets that align with success at an organization like ours, right? Nobody sends you a bad resume. Nobody sends you bad referrals or anything like that. Like all that stuff has been curated. So you need to get down to the brass tacks. Is somebody humble, hungry, smart, gritty, competitive? And do they have extreme personal accountability? The raw talent of being a great salesperson and teaching you my sales process or methodology for prospecting, closing, or what the pitch is, that's easy, right? Um, But teaching you to be humble, hungry, smart, gritty, competitive, and have personal accountability, that's just who you are. Most of that is set by the time that you turn 21 years old. Hmm. So we just turned everything on its head. And then, you know, the other problem you run into, especially in the organization that I was hiring for, you know, you start running um, into churn issues and you got to be predictive of your churn issues. Otherwise you're always a day late and a dollar short. You hire three, lose three. Yep. Um, so you can start to tell based off of your sales, your growth, your performance, how many people you need and what the predicted churn is going to be. Uh, and then lastly, if you're losing people in droves, then it's probably you. It's not everybody else. <laughs> That's my final tip. Yeah, build a great system that brings people in, helps them grow and develop and crush it, and you'll have a, a thread in business. Yeah. You work for them. Great.
1: That was a great thread. Tell us how, and um, yeah, so what is a Bitcoin product or service that doesn't
0: exist yet that you think would be great? Man, that was a great question. Um, If we're talking specifically on the vein of real estate, I would love to see the entire world of uh, title uh, be moved over to a ledger where I don't have to hire some third party company to run this due diligence for me um, and go down to the super old school paper titling down at the municipality and determine whether or not somebody else is on this at some point in time. Yeah. And that creates a whole new slew of ability to fractionalize the ownership of a piece of real estate, which I know a lot of people are already kind of thinking and talking about this. The hardest part is just going to be able to get past the ancient process that is, you know, how the government currently does titling and how it's different at every single municipality. Yep. No, perfect.
1: All right. Tell us, uh, yeah, tell us where people can find you and get in touch.
0: Yeah. Best place to follow up with me, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, hang out on Instagram a little bit as well. Handles are all the same. Samson, S-A-M-S-O-N dot Jagoras, J-A-G-O-R-A-S. Perfect.
1: I love this. And yeah, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy this, like Bitcoin and real estate crossover, we did this just as a blitz episode. Um, Like give the show a follow because we want to do more of this. And so if you're out there and you're in both these worlds, tag us, talk to Bobby, tag us. And like, we want to keep doing more. So tell us, you know, things that you think about at the intersection and we'll catch you on the next episode. Hey all, this is Brian. You can reach me on Twitter, at Brain Harrington. Shoot me a DM with any feedback from today's episode. This has been a Choice App production. Bitcoin is becoming centric to personal finance, and we want to help you learn how to better engage with Bitcoin financial services. None of this is financial advice, and is for education and entertainment.